Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Well, hello, everyone, and good morning from Maryland, USA. Uh, today is November 4th, 2022. We're rolling into the end of the year. It's uh, incredible to say those dates and numbers. It's uh, very strange. Uh, my name is Jesse Friedlander. I'm the host of the Reorient podcast, and I'm really thrilled and delighted uh, today to have uh, on the show uh, a friend, an old friend, uh, a really amazing man, an entrepreneur, just so many great qualities. Uh, so Jack Perkowski. And uh, many of you uh, out there who have followed um, China and, and the business world over the last couple of decades may have heard of Mr. China, Jack Perkowski, because he, um, he was one of the early entrants into China um, to help develop its nascent auto um, industry and with a focus on auto parts. And then he expanded his presence into other uh, sectors. And he uh, built up a huge operation in China with, with tens of thousands of employees. And, um, and I'm sure it had some ups and downs and lots of challenges, but he always bounced back. And he's been a frequent commentator on things related to China and, and advises uh, on businesses. And uh, he has a lot of great lessons. He also has uh, a wonderful book um, uh, called Managing the Dragon. Um, and that's about, uh, you know, doing business in China. And um, he is um, very uh, generous to give us his time today to, to share some of his thoughts and experiences. So, Jack, welcome to the Reorient podcast. Well, thank you very much, Jesse. I'm delighted to be here. It was great to see uh, you and your lovely family a couple months ago and to, uh, to reconnect. And I'm happy to uh, to have an opportunity to talk about uh, my favorite subject, China, <laughs> and doing business in the country. So just, Jack, before we sort of jump into China, um, you have a um, be great to, for listeners to know a little bit about your background and your personal story, um, which you um, which you talk about uh, wonderfully in your book. And you also have a Wikipedia page. I don't know to what extent that's uh, accurate or inaccurate. Uh, it's certainly not comprehensive, has some nuggets in there. But if you could um, give us just the sort of the highlights of your story and how that brought you first to China, that would be uh, that would be very good. Good. Well, uh, I grew up in Pittsburgh, went on to Yale. And among the other things that I did at Yale was I, I played on one of the best Yale football teams of all time, including the uh, the famous or infamous 29-29 tie against, uh, against Harvard in 1968. I then went to the Harvard Business School. And then after leaving Harvard in 1973, I went to work on Wall Street for a company called Payne Weber, which is now part of UBS. And I went into the investment banking business where, you know, I learned how to raise capital and do all the things that investment bankers do. And by 1990, I was uh, the head of investment banking at Payne Weber. So I'd had quite a interesting first career, but I decided I wanted to do something completely different for a second career. And I got it in my head that what I wanted to do was to identify a trend and then do something to get out ahead of that trend. 
And uh, so I wanted to be a, a pioneer, if you will, not a not a follower. And it could have been any industry, any part of the world didn't make any difference. The only consideration and qualification was it had to be a long-term trend. Because I said, whatever I'm going to do next, I'm going to do the, for the rest of my working career. And, uh, you know, when I was doing my due diligence, if you will, in the, in the summer of 1990, I stumbled across a very interesting statistic, which was the fact that uh, half the world's population lives in Asia and the average age is in the low 20s. And I thought to myself, and in having young ch three children, three grown children now, I know that young people spend money. So I felt that as the young population, the very large young populations of Asia uh, began to, to spend money, you know, got married, get apartments, buy, you know, buy, buy furniture, buy a car, that as that happened, that the development of Asia could be a very important development in the 21st century. And that seemed to me to qualify for the long-term trend that I was looking for. So I got interested in Asia. At that time in 1990, if you were interested in Asia, you thought about Hong Kong, Singapore, Taiwan, Korea. I mean, nobody really knew too much about China. So I started traveling to Hong Kong in uh, the fall of 1990 and all through 1991. And at the end of 91, picked up and moved to Hong Kong. And when I got to Hong Kong, I did one thing very simply. I talked to the overseas Chinese businessmen who had built very substantial businesses in Hong Kong. And what I found was that uh, in any interview or any meeting, they would spend five minutes talking about their very big business in Hong Kong, and then 25 minutes talking about what they were trying to do in China. So it then dawned on me that if the smartest and most knowledgeable people in the region were going to China, that, uh, you know, basically, uh, you know, that changed my focus from Asia generally to China in particular. And, and so I made my first trip to China in August of 92. So that that's how I got from Pittsburgh, Yale, Harvard, Wall Street to China. So um, you really went in, uh, unlike most um, businessmen uh, at the time uh, who may have already had, you know, either a very large um, operational business, whether they're Hong Kong entrepreneurs or multinationals, or they had some, you know, connection with China through their family or, or through the business, you went in sort of with neither, really as just an entrepreneur with a, with an, uh, with a dream and a vision that I think somewhat evolved. So what, tell us a little bit more about how you, um, you know, made a pretty big leap at a time really based on, you know, you could say somewhat limited information uh, and, and eventually moving yourself uh, over there uh, halfway across the world, having not speaking Chinese and having not spent that much time in Asia. Yeah. Well, uh, the one thing I learned on in 20 years on wall street is the trend is your friend. So, so the, the important thing is to get the trend right. And if you get the trend right, then other things tend to uh, to fall into place. And I didn't know anything about China before I went there. Uh, and I, I tell people, I went, there's a complete blank sheet of paper. Uh, I'd never been to China. I was an American studies major at Yale, not a Chinese studies major. As you pointed out, you know, I didn't speak the language. Uh, or I don't, I still don't speak the language. And, 
you know, I'm from Pittsburgh. Most people don't think the English I speak qualifies <laughs> as a language. So, so I know my limitations. So I went there as a complete sheet of, pa- sheet of paper. And, and frankly, I think when going into a new opportunity, you know, in my case, it was China, but it could be almost anything today. I think in, in many cases, it's better to go in with a completely open mind because you can talk to people, and certainly there were China experts that I talked to as I was kind of lo- looking at all this. But, you know, a lot of times their, their information was dated or it wasn't really based on the, the latest information. And what I found about China is China changes very, very quickly. So, you know, and I, 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 you know, I would, over the course of the years, I spoke to many uh, college students, MBA students who came to China. And I told them if they spent two weeks in China, when they stepped off, you know, when they left Beijing or Shanghai to go back home, they were probably the most knowledgeable people about China at that point, at that moment in time, because they had the most up-to-date information. So I kind of approached it that way and really just traveled around the country. And when I got interested in the automotive industry, for example, before we went to talk to anybody about raising capital, you know, myself and a couple of colleagues visited over 100 factories in 40 cities all over China in the first nine months of 1993. So when you do that and you kind of go to different parts, you talk to different people, you kind of get the firsthand impression, you know, you, you and, and if you trust your own judgment, and I certainly did, if you trust your own judgment, you can start to piece together these little clues that you get as you go along and you can come up with kind of a, so that's the way I approached it. I think that was the best way to do it. I was never intimidated by China. I always felt that, you know, China, like any organization has a logic. And if you could just piece together the different pieces of logic, you could figure out how the country operated. So, um, yeah, we're talking uh, early 90s, like 90, uh, 92, 93. Um, those trips to China, uh, what were sort of the key impressions or surprises uh, from there having, you know, before, you know, when you were just relying on perhaps information that you got for the U.S. or when you were in Hong Kong? So when you were actually traveling around China, what were some of the main takeaways for you before you actually decided to launch the business? Well, you know, maybe I'd even start before I made my first trip to China when I was in Hong Kong, thinking about China before I really got got engaged with it. And as I kind of learned about the country, it struck me the way the country operated was. The, and you made the point that I didn't have any connections there. I didn't have any family that did business in China or anything. But as I thought about it, I, you know, I looked at China and all these different cities and provinces around the country. And from what I could read and understand, what, um, you know, what struck me was that every mayor of a city or governor of a province was like the CEO of a company. And and, because they were trying to build their city or build their province. And what did they need to build it? They needed capital to build the business. And certainly in 1991, 92, capital was not anything like it is today in China. They needed management because clearly the companies in China, you know, had been closed for so many years to the outside world. So they needed to update their management and they needed technology because when China emerged in 1978 from their period of closing, they were, you know, they had to climb a high wall of technology to really uh, to really compete 
in the global business. They needed capital management and technology. And quite simply, I felt that if I could go to them and basically say, I can bring you capital management and technology, you know, I didn't need to be related to anybody. I figured that that alone, and if, you know, I had to be convincing, obviously. And frankly, when I started doing this in the vast world of China, I was probably the only person in China who had been on Wall Street, let alone spent 20 years there. So, so basically that helped a lot because that gave me credibility. You know, and you know, they kind of questioned whether we could bring management and technology, but we started off with, with kind of the, okay. So just sitting from in Hong Kong and understanding from what I could read about what China, you know, how China operated, I felt, I didn't think I needed to have introductions. And basically if I could just get to the right people, and, and give that message that I would be heard. Okay, so when I went to China, I, you know, the, the you know, frankly, it, it, it kind of was exactly the way I thought about it. And you know, we got, you know, we were welcomed with open arms wherever we we went for precisely the reasons that I that I mentioned. I guess what I didn't quite appreciate is how personable the people are in China, and, and frankly. You know, and I put this in the book that, you know, as much as the difference between Pittsburgh and China, as you might think there is, there really isn't. Because, you know, my parents, uh, you know, basically, you know, family was important. Hard work was important, personal responsibility and education. And frankly, when I went to China and really got to spend time with people in China, the... Um, you know, it struck me that they had exactly the same values. So even though it's a different culture, different language, different everything, to me, the Chinese people were basically had the same values that I grew up with. And so I felt very comfortable operating in China. The one thing that kept me in China for all this time is when we were doing this uh, trip around China, you know, we went to places in the mountains because many of China's auto factories have been moved by Mao Zedong into the mountains. So a lot of places we visited, no foreigner had ever been. And when we would travel to those villages, you drive through and the people were obviously poor. I mean, you could just tell by the, the houses, the surroundings, the clothes they wore, you knew they were poor, but nowhere in that country did I see one sign of despair. Basically, everybody there was, I mean, people weren't sitting around on doorsteps and everything. Everybody was working. They were carrying vegetables to market. They had bricks on their back and they're building buildings and so forth. And I thought to myself at that time, if you ever have a country with a billion people, that in the face of such adversity, have such a hard, so, you know, such a, a work ethic and, and basically can approach the world in such a positive attitude, you don't want to bet against it. So frankly, what encouraged me before I even started the business and what I found was basically, I became a big believer in the, you know, in the Chinese people. Now that's separate from the government. I'm not going to talk about, but I mean, but the Chinese people, I think are very much like Americans. They like Americans. They have a good sense of humor. They have the same values and they're hardworking. So those were kind of some of my major takeaways from my early trips. I would say I shared exactly, you know, that same takeaway that it basically um, 
especially once China became, you know, much more uh, market oriented, that everyone was working. And I mean, yeah. you would see things um, uh, that you would almost see nowhere else where, you know, someone who's very, very poor is pulling uh, recycled cardboard or cans right. that are stacked 20 feet high. And you're thinking, how is that thing not going to fall down? And they're just moving along and they're going to make a very small amount of money for it, but they're going to do that, you know, 12, 14, 16 hours a day, every day of, of the year. And they're going to, you know, take care of themselves. So that was a very uh, incredible sight to see all over the country. And, um, the other thing I would just mention is in your book, you you give wonderful descriptions about your uh, trips to various parts of, of very rural uh, China, which very few people get to. And we'll talk about it a little bit later, especially yeah. the, uh, some of the the uh, restaurant scenes are, are quite humorous. Um, but before we do that, um, can you tell us a little bit about you know of all the industries because you really did come in with a blank sheet of paper and and you eventually chose um, the auto parts industry. So what was the thinking behind that? And and in retrospect, do you wish you had you know chosen a different industry? Well, I mean, you know, we looked at a lot of different industries. We looked at cement. We looked at steel. We looked at I mean, you name it, we looked at it because because China in the early nineties was really at a very was at a very embryonic stage of development. And so they so every industry needed capital management and technology. Now I got interested in autos, not because I had any experience in autos. I didn't. I mean, I had a couple clients that were components companies, but I, I'm not an engineer. I didn't know anything about really autos. Um, and it wasn't because China had a big auto industry at the time. At the time, uh, China was only making 500,000 vehicles a year. But you know that if you're if you're paying attention in China, I mean, you can tell where China's going to go. I mean, they give you a five-year plan, which they pretty much stick to. I mean, in, you know, I mean, not in every detail, but in large part. So if you just read the five-year plan and you listen to people, you know exactly what China's going to, to do. And so even though China only had 500,000 vehicles at the time, you could you could predict that China would one day have a large auto industry. Now I couldn't predict I couldn't have predicted back then that China would be doing twenty five million vehicles a year, but I knew it'd be a lot more than five hundred thousand. Okay, so so that was of interest. I went to a uh, I was invited to a Euro Money conference it was put on by Arthur Anderson at the time. If, if you can believe that, <laughs> you know, before their demise, Arthur Anderson was the leading accounting firm in uh, in China. And, and, and this fellow from Volkswagen, a lawyer who had just completed um, two joint ventures. You know, Volkswagen had a joint venture uh, in the north with FAW, and then they completed a joint venture in Shanghai. So he was talking about those. And so here, I, you know, I started listening. And before I heard his presentation, I didn't even realize that China had an auto industry. But here's a guy from Volkswagen basically talking about how they, and he, he made the point that Volkswagen considered China their single biggest opportunity. So at the end of his time, I got interested because if you're from the United States, no matter what you do, you know something about autos because China or United States has been the largest auto market. So after his presentation, hands, he asked for questions. Hand goes up, what's your biggest problem? And without hesitating, he says, my biggest problem is getting an adequate supply of high quality parts. I said, oh, the components industry, that's kind of an interesting industry. 
So that kind of got me thinking about otters. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.